If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke chapter 8. As we have been moving through Luke's Gospel, we have been seeing Jesus most recently heal the sick and forgive the sinful. He's been traveling around, ministering in different areas. He's even been dining with a Pharisee. And now as Luke chapter 8 begins, uh, Luke, the author, is reorienting us to what Jesus' ministry was really all about. For all the amazing healings of the sick and the bold encounters with his detractors, what Jesus' ministry is all about is seen in verse 8. It was about proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to people who needed to hear it. Notice he did this through cities and through villages. That is to say, through by implication, to, to all kinds of people. It was not just the important urban centers, but even out to the villages where people hardly left town and were probably considered in today's terms as country bumpkins. He went everywhere and talked to all kinds of people, teaching and preaching and spending time with them. What did he teach and preach? Again, we're told the good news of the kingdom, the reality of God's reign present through him, the Messiah. And how sinners could gain salvation and forgiveness and peace with God. And as we think about Jesus preaching from city to village, we want to see this morning what happens through that ministry. We want to see what happens as Jesus preaches and teaches the gospel. What effect does it have on those around him? What effect does it have in the world? We want to see this because we continue to preach and teach the good news today. We continue to preach and teach and to declare uh, the kingdom of God is at hand through the dead and now resurrected Jesus Christ. So when a preacher stands in a pulpit here at this church or in any church, when you are at work and you share with co-workers, with neighbors, perhaps at home with family, when you sit down alone and simply open your Bible and read the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed either by you or to you. So the question is, what kind of effect should we expect to happen? What, what should we see happen as a consequence of the declaration of the gospel? That's what we want to see this morning from Luke chapter 8. The first thing that we see is this, that preaching the word produces disciples of Christ. Preaching the word produces disciples of Christ. Look at Verses 1 through 3 with me. Soon afterward, Luke says, that is the events of the previous section, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Jesus begins proclaiming at the very outset of his ministry that we saw back in chapter 4 that the kingdom of God and people begin to gather around him. People begin to respond to his message. And this is not just the fickle crowds that we're going to see and talk about in just a few minutes. These are people who become his disciples. Those that find a, a healing balm for their sin-sick souls in his words. Those that hear implicitly the hope and the mercy and the grace that he is offering. That the faith that he is calling them to, and they begin to trust in him and in the message that he brings, and therefore they begin to follow him. They begin to stay with him and to learn from him 
and to and, and to to want to seek to be his disciples. Notice first that Luke's, Luke makes a point of saying here that women were a part of this group of disciples. That may seem insignificant to us as we look around this room. We see several uh, young ladies here with us. Why is it so important? Because in Jesus' day, there wasn't anything like cross-gender discipleship. There were no co-ed Sunday school classes. And so you can imagine uh, even the talk that went around about Jesus because of this. But here, what Luke is pointing out is the way in which Jesus' preaching of the gospel is already beginning to transform the culture in specifically gospel ways. And frankly, this is why what Luke shows us is also significant for us today. For one of the charges often leveled at Christianity and the church is that it is oppressive to women. That it suppresses them in their life and their faith. But you need to see that throughout the Gospels, and particularly Luke shows, women flock to Jesus. They they surround him and they want to be with him. And I don't think that that is in any kind of a rock star sexual way. They weren't his groupies uh, trying to, to be near him for, for something. No, no, no. What they saw in him was freedom and liberation spiritually from the culture in which they lived. He, here was a man who loved them and valued them not for what they could do for him, but because of who they were as image bearers of the living God. And so what we see is that at its best, the church should be the most attractive place for women to be. The church should be the place where women feel most valued and most respected. By implication then, in the household of a Christian husband, wives and daughters should feel most loved, most cared for, most respected, not for what they can provide that husband and father, but because of who they are as image bearers of the living God. God certainly has specific roles for men and women, and yet the Bible is clear they are equal in value and in worth. It's an important lesson for us to be reminded of. Nevertheless, the emphasis here, I think, in what Luke is showing us is that these disciples who gathered around Jesus, feeling the joy of healing and forgiveness, were also led to serve under his leadership. It is an essential mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ, not just that you learn from him, but that you also serve under him. The twelve are with him. These are the apostles that have been mentioned in the previous chapters. He has designated representatives before the world. They are following him. They are listening to him. They are being trained by him and will one day soon be preaching for him. But not everyone in this group is an apostle. Verse 2, you have Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. You have to understand, what, what is the context in which Jesus has always lived? He was under the care of Mary and supported by Joseph. That's not to say that Joseph didn't care for him, but uh, slightly different context culturally where uh, Mary was going to be the one at home providing encouragement and, uh, and uh, uh, teaching while Joseph is making a living providing for the family serving as carpenter. Uh, it's possible that, that those responsibilities fell to Jesus himself. Um, he is called the son of a carpenter. This is how the family was supported. They would have learned him and his brothers, the carpentry trade, even from a young age, probably would have helped Joseph in uh, the carpentry shop. 
But now he sets off on his ministry. He leaves home. What does he do? There's no free government phones. There's no free government food. There's no free government assistance for housing. He's on his own. How is he going to survive? You think about the disciples who leave everything behind, who leave their businesses and their livelihoods. Now, does that mean that they're never fishing, that they're never doing what we know? Matthew was kind of out because he left the tax collecting business and he's probably not ever going back to that. In fact, we know he didn't go back to that. How does the man survive? How does he live? We were told at one point someone comes to him and he says, uh, and he says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus' first response says, hey, the son of man's got no place to go. Foxes got holes, birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. In other words, I got nothing to offer you guy. Don't expect it to come to me and get wealthy and rich. And I know this stands in marked contrast to some people you see on television. False teachers say, ah, Jesus was rich. Jesus was wealthy. He was charging money for the all-day Bible conferences. Yeah, right. Sure. Remember, when someone says something like that, what is your first response? Show me a verse. Show me a verse. Show, show me the Bible where, where it says that so I can believe you. And it's not there. He is poor. And you'll notice what happens. People serve him by supporting his ministry. These are people of means that are able to give to the support of Jesus' ministry of preaching and teaching. Whether that was just money handed to him, whether they provided him food, whether they provided him housing, we don't know. The point is, Jesus' preaching produces disciples. Those disciples are learning from him, and those disciples are also serving him. Logically, we have to ask, what, what are we doing as his disciples? Are we learning from him? Are we, are we serving him? Often, by default, we think we're learning from him, simply by virtue of the fact that we're sitting in this room right now. And so we think we're, we're learning from Jesus uh, through the word. Yeah, that's, that's probably true and good. But what about serving him? How are you ministering for him? Very often we think of those ministry and uh, things in terms of positions. You have pastors, you have teachers, you have deacons, you have song leaders, you have money counters, you have nursery workers. But ministry, uh, on, although those things are all good, ministry is on one level much simpler and also much more profound. It's simpler in that true, basic, essential Christian ministry is simply this, the prayerful speaking of God's word by one person to another identifying prayerfully what is the need in this person's life and opening your mouth and declaring to them verses you have memorized or opening the scriptures and reading to them what God says to their life. It might be for evangelism, it might be for encouragement, or it might be for equipping for ministry. But that is basic Christian ministry. You know what that means? The jobs are never all taken. You can't ever come to church and say, well, where can I plug in? And we say, well, we, we, you know, we got everybody. Sorry. No, you don't need a title, you don't need a position, you don't need a paycheck to serve as a Christian minister, as a disciple of Jesus in that regard. The opportunities to serve him are only limited by our imaginations and by our willingness to serve. But beyond that, on a more profound level, some of you have specific giftings and abilities. Some of you can teach well in a classroom setting. Some of you can build things or fix things. This morning, uh, my competency in this area was seen in simply holding up a light fixture while somebody else did the hard work of putting the wiring back together and screwing it into the ceiling. Uh, I, I, I fulfilled what I was capable of doing, and they fulfilled what they were capable of doing. 
Some of you, as we've heard this morning and see every week, some of you can sing. Some of you can organize and administrate. Some of you simply have lots of time and lots of cash. The question is, what are you doing with what you have for God? How are you serving Jesus by serving the church? So very often we want to divorce those things. We'll say, well, I'm serving God, but even though I'm not active in the church, guess what? Jesus is active in the world through the church. Just read Acts, read Ephesians, read any of the letters, and that's what you'll see. Jesus is not just out there doing stuff. This is how he works, through his people, namely the body of Christ. So if you say, well, I'm not involved in a church, guess what? Then you're not being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. If you say, well, I'm not sure I have time, then you're not being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't care. Well, I don't say he cares. He does care. He shouldn't be doing something sinful. But at one level, it doesn't matter how you pay your bills. All of us sit here, if we are disciples of Jesus, as servants of the living God, ministers in and through the church. So the question is not when someone asks, what do you do? Well, I work at so-and-so, or I stay at home with my kids, or whatever, whatever. No, the, what you should say is, I make disciples for Jesus Christ. Yeah, sometimes I have to go and punch a time clock so I can feed my family. But I'm not there because I, I, I love that job and I, I'm consumed with it. It's the most delightful thing in the world. That's just how I pay the bills. What I do is serve Jesus Christ, my Savior, because I'm his disciple. And so that, that completely revolutionizes our thinking about what we do and how we serve and about how we invest our gifts and our efforts. The second thing that we see here, the effect of the word is this. Believing the word produces fruit for Christ. Believing the word produces fruit for Christ. We see this in verses 4 through 14. And here we find one of Jesus' most famous parables. In Luke, or excuse me, in verse 4, Luke says, And when a, crowd, a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to see him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I want you to imagine you're in the crowd that day. You've been following Jesus because... You've been seeing the miracles and you've been uh, just, I mean, experiencing all kinds of amazing things as you've been kind of following him around and you hear that parable, you know, uh, the, the, the picture I kind of get is Jesus is walking, he's talking with his disciples and they're kind of like, Jesus, you look at all these people that are behind us. You know, he kind of looks back and there's maybe, you know, a couple hundred people, the crowds, that, that says to me it's more than 10, right? Crowds. Unless you're my dad, in which case like one or two is a crowd and you don't want to be there and you're out. You know, but anyway, I'm thinking that's not, that's not Jesus' mindset. And so Jesus kind of stops. And so, the, you know, you imagine like in traffic, it kind of ripples back, everybody stops. And he just turns around and he says this parable. And then he ends with, if you have ears to hear, then hear what I have to say. And he turns right back around and starts walking. People are going, what just happened? What was that about? I mean, I, I understood he was talking about the farmer. He's throwing seed and, and a lot of it doesn't go anywhere. But some stuff happens to it, doesn't take root. But, but there's some good soil that takes root. But what in the world does that have to do with, with miracles? What does it have to do with what God's doing? I don't get it. I don't get it. Even the disciples are a little fuzzy as they're walking away and say, hey, Jesus, um, what are you talking about? Tell us what the parable means. Verse 9. 
To you, he says, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. So that, and he quotes from Isaiah, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now, why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, in part because huge crowds would often follow him and they're not really interested in what he has to say. They're interested in what they can see him do. Uh, a couple weeks ago in Sunday school, someone uh, was, was asking uh, about uh, John 6. And here we see uh, he feeds 5,000 men and their families. And the next day, the crowds are still like, hey, where's the bread? We're, we're back for more. We want the free lunch again. And, he, and he's like, you know, uh, you, you don't get it. Right, I am bread from heaven. It, it, it's my it's my words that you need to understand and to read, and that's not what they're interested in. And Jesus knows that that the crowds are just there for what they can get. Sometimes they're there for the show, and he says that that's not what it's about. And so even the parable itself that he tells is describing the situation that is going on here. Just as with Isaiah, from whom Jesus quotes in verse 10, so now God will judge the hard hearts of people who don't listen by hardening hardening them even further in their unbelief. That's what Jesus is saying here. People are listening to the word, but they're not really listening. They're hearing it said, but, but it's not bearing fruit. They're not really believing what it says. Jesus says they will be further hardened in their unbelief. I know we like to quote from Isaiah 55 and say, well, when the word of God goes forth, it will not come back void. It will return with the purpose for which it was sent. We agree with that. Here's the problem. We think the purpose for which it is sent is always people get saved. And so we think, well, that person is a terrible sinner, but if I just share the gospel once, the word will have its purpose and they'll eventually get saved. That's not what Isaiah means. You go back and read Isaiah chapter 6. What is his whole ministry about? He has this amazing ministry. He doesn't speak in mysterious parables. He is, he is being absolutely crystal clear. And yet God tells him from the beginning, part of your ministry is going to further harden the unbelieving hearts of my people so that it will be clear to them. My judgment upon them is just. So here's the reality. The same word that goes forth comes to different people and has a different purpose it's going to accomplish. The Puritans used to say, the same son that melts the ice, hardens the clay. In other words, for some people who hear the word of God, they hear the gospel and they are their hearts melt because they, 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 they burn within them because they say, oh my goodness, look at the love and the mercy that God is showing to me. He is telling me the way of salvation and, and how to grow in godliness. And they respond with affection, with faith and with obedience. And others hear and say, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I, I, what does that have to do with the 21st century? I don't want to hear that. I don't hear about sexual morality. Come on, this is 2013. We, 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 we gave up sexual morality in, the, in, 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 morality in the 60s. We just do whatever feels good. So they become more hardened, more calcified in their sin and more determined to live how they want to live. Both are the mysterious purposes of the word going forth. 
That's what Jesus is describing here. And so you think about, you think about the different soils that exist. They represent the different responses of people's hearts when they hear the word. Some reject it immediately and they don't believe. Others, others appear to believe, but then suddenly difficulty enters their life. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought Christianity was just a cakewalk. I thought all my problems went away. This is ridiculous. I'm out of here. Right? You ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Doesn't take very long. And the guy that was like, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go. Boom, he's out of here. First sign of trouble. Boom, I'm going back home. I can't take this anymore. How many people have we seen like that? I, it was, it's kind of, it's a sad thing, but it's also kind of a joke um, that uh, I, I explained to the elders one time. Every once in a while we'll have somebody show up and after the service will come up and they'll say, man, pastor, this was like the best service I've ever been to. I have been in church in a while and this was great. I love that message. I'm going to join this church. I say, glad to have you. We'll see you later. And I, and I always turn to those and say, they'll never be back. They'll never be. Every time someone shows that level of... The, I want to join this church. Guess what? They're gone. Because they had an encounter with God. They felt His presence. They had an experience, but it was not united with faith. And so Monday comes and there's difficulty. Or as we see here, the pleasures of life begin to take root and they say, you know what? I... This feels even better than what I felt on Sunday. This is what I really want. This is what really makes me feel good. So they forget about God. Every time. Now, if somebody shows up and says it to me one time, and they're back the next week, and they're back the next week, and six months later they're active members of the church, hey, I'll love it. Don't get me wrong. But so often I see people who have that immediate burst of joy. Well, this is the best. Why haven't I heard this before? And then they're gone. They don't persevere. Their love for the world is greater than their love for God. But then there's the good soil, isn't there? One of the four. Those who hear the word preached to them and believe and continue to believe. They have real faith. Jesus says of this good soil, it is those hearing the word that hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In other words, their fruit endures you may not you may not get the the honey crisp apple falling off the tree the, the second the second time you see them right they hear the gospel they believe they're not maybe not producing the kind of fruit that that we would expect from a, a seasoned believer the next week but here's the thing they continue to believe they continue to believe and to draw the analogy that the sap continues to run through their branches and 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 year after year leaves begin to be produced and eventually fruit starts hanging from the limbs and, and maybe it's mixed fruit at the beginning. Maybe, maybe some of it's good and some of it's like, ah, you, you're trying, but this is, this is not what we want to see. But eventually, year after year, they continue to grow. They continue to mature. They continue to receive the life-giving nourishment of God's word. And now good, lasting, abiding fruit is produced in their lives. Jesus is saying, look, this is how the kingdom of God is. It's not about crowds. And we're not against big churches. Let me just hear me. I grew up in a big church. Big, big church compared to, to this one. We're not against big churches. But we never equate big church with God's work. Because the reality is, again, you, you will find just as many big churches that have no gospel and therefore are just crowd control and not a church as you will a big church that has the gospel and is producing good fruit. Jesus is saying, look, and, and this is not like, it's a math lesson. Every time you share the gospel four times, only one's going to believe. It's probably actually less than that. The point is, though, it's not just about who's showing up in the crowd. 
It's, it's not just about how many people you gather together. It's about knowing that the word works slowly sometimes to take root, but in the end, it will bear fruit. The kingdom will come. It may not come as fast as you want it. It may not grow as quickly as, it's, as you desire, but God is faithful and promises that some seed, some word that is thrown out there, it's going to fall on good soil. It's going to fall on a heart that God has made good and honest and they will believe and bear fruit in patience. So what should we do? What should we do in response to this? Well, first of all, we should believe the word. You know, the reality is this. No one hears the gospel the first time and says, uh, I think I'm rocky soil. I mean, this sounds great, but I just know next week pff, I'm going to blow it off. I mean, that's not how we live, is it? And, and, and so even as, even as Christians who've been living for years and years and years and years, we're not that self-aware. And so the, the implicit command is believe the word that is preached to you. Continue to believe the word that is preached to you. Assume your heart is the good soil in this parable and continue to hear and to believe. Don't neglect it. Don't brush it off. Don't play around thinking you have forever. Hear it today and believe. But then secondly, as disciples, share the word. Believe the word and share the word. Jesus went out sowing the seed of the word. He trained his apostles to sow the seed of the word. He commands all his disciples to sow the seed of the word. And so if we have believed, if we are his disciples, then we should be sharing that word as well. And again, hear what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying you, you go out at State Park and you get yourself a little pulpit and you stand up on it and you start screaming at people that they're sinners, they better, they're going to better turn or they're going to burn. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're sitting next to somebody at work and they say, man, I, I just had a terrible week this week. You say, well, tell me about it. What happens? Is there anything I, I can do to help? And, and, and they begin to tell you about it. And, and they get to the point and say, you know, I, I just don't have any hope. I mean, how, I mean, do you ever have bad things happen to you? How do you get through it? Well, I get through it because I've got a, I've got a God who promises to be there with me, who promises that even at the worst of times, he is working to bring about something good in my life and the lives of his people. But it's his people that he's working in. You can be that person too through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what going to church and Christianity is all about. It's about you've trusted in Christ and now you want to live for him, knowing that God desires to work in your life. You want to hear more about this? You want to study about who Jesus is? I mean, take like 15 minutes a day on our lunch break. What did I just do? I just sowed the word. How long did it take? About 90 seconds. So, so when you hear, share the word, you should not think, I gotta have this Bible study ready, and I gotta have this 20 minute presentation, and I gotta have this. No, 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 no. Just have the word on your lips. Scatter the seed. The thing I love about this parable is that it doesn't ever say the sower investigated the soil. He did sample testing. He got down there and did chemical analysis. I wonder what this soil is like. He didn't dig down to see if there's a layer of rock down there. What did he do? He's just reaching that bag and he's just sowing seed like crazy. He is throwing it anywhere and everywhere it'll go. Why? Because he knows he is not responsible for the growth. He is not responsible for the results. The sower is responsible to sow the seed. God is the one who gives the growth. God is the one who produces the fruit. But he only does that when we're faithful to sow. When we're faithful to share the word. And we can do that with confidence knowing some are going to believe and some will be saved. 
It may not be as many as we like. It may not be the people that we would like in the timing that we would like. We just saw this morning. We just saw this morning. Jesus telling those around him that he had sheep not of this fold and he must bring them in as well. Paul received a call when he was disgusted and, and, and beaten and he's ready to leave the town and he has a vision that says, go in there. I've got more people who are going to respond to the gospel. So he gets himself back up. He dusts himself back on and he goes in there because he knows I'm going to preach. It's going to be difficult, but God's going to save people. God's going to, that's the confidence we have. It's not in us. It's in God honoring the sown seed. That fruit of people's lives born out in good soil will not just be seen in the expansion of the kingdom, but in an individual's lives as well. This is the third thing that we see. Hearing the word cultivates maturity in Christ. Hearing the word cultivates maturity in Christ. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, as you can imagine, the issue of light is a little bit different for us than it was in Jesus' day. Unless there is a a power grid failure, any amount of light you desire is pretty much at your disposal with the flick of a switch, right? Now, some of you are fancy and you have push buttons or you have sliders or whatever it is, but you know what I'm talking about, the light switch, okay? So it doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night, it's the middle of the day, you need a little extra light, boom, you got lights, right? Let's say the power does go out, then what do we do? Got candles, got flashlights, I think I heard calculator, I'm not sure what that means, but I probably heard it wrong. Generators, yeah, but, you know. City, city folk don't have generators. We have cell phones we pull out. And we say, here you go. It's, it's light the way, you know. Have you ever taken a shower by flashlight before? I've done that. No power in the wintertime. you got to get going. you got to do it. But the point is, we have free electric... Well, not free, but free-flowing... How's that? Electricity all over the place. They didn't have that in the first century, right? I mean, you, sometimes we know these things, but we don't put it together in the point of the illustration. That's what Jesus is getting at here. If it is, if it is first century, then when those, when those fingers of light begin coming over the horizon and sneaking into your room and, and begin crawling across your eyelids, you open up and you realize, oh, I see sunlight. It's time to get out of bed. And then at night, as, as the sunlight goes from yellow to orange to that kind of amazing pink, purpley hue streaming through the clouds as it, as it begins to go down to, to dark blue and then gone, you realize, I better get home, it's time for bed. Sunrise comes up, you get out of bed, sun goes down, you go to bed. That's how life in the first century pre-electricity was. Unless, unless you pull an oil lamp in your house. They say, what about outside? That's fire, that's different. You don't put fire inside your house in first century, okay? Uh, mud and bricks and hay, uh, that straw, that does not go well with big roaring fire, okay? Neither does smoke inside the house. You put an oil lamp. What are you going to do with that oil lamp? I'm going to light this lamp, and then I'm going to stick a jar on top of it, right? No, why would you do that? The whole point is you lit the light. You need light in your house. So Jesus says, you don't put it under a jar. You don't put it under your bed. You stick it on a little table, you put it up so the, so the whole room is illuminated by this lamp. That's what it's for. It's for people to be able to see. And likewise, Jesus says, what is the word of God for? 
Why is he giving it to us? It is to bring about change in our lives. It is to produce light in spiritual darkness. Not only in us, but in all who enter that house. As God's people, the more that we come to understand what God says in his word, the more we will be changed and the more we will be able to help others to change as well. He says again in verse 17, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret, nor is there anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Jesus is saying the secrets of my kingdom aren't meant to remain secrets. They are meant to be declared, to be made known. We're going public with this thing, Jesus says. It's not about keeping it to ourselves. It's about shining it into the world. He is investing in his disciples so that they in turn can go out and shine light into darkness by proclaiming these truths in the world. But then notice the warning that Jesus gives. Take care, verse 18. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now what is he talking about here? What is this warning about? He's saying not only will spiritual light be revealed now, but it will be revealed on the last day before God. And what, it will, be, what will become clear is how well you listen to the word of God. The reality is, as elders, we do everything we possibly can to follow what we think is a biblical command that only believers are members of our church. But here's the thing. We're not God. I can't see into your soul. I can't see into the recesses of your mind and your heart. And I can't know whether you have true faith or not. But that will not be the case on the final day. Then the secrets of the kingdom will be revealed, not just generically in the world, but in your heart. Have you embraced those gospel truths and what he says is this the word of god is meant to change us and if we are willing to be changed by it if we have the word and we are allowing it to have its work then god will give us more god will entrust more to it so so if he gives us a little bit if he gives us opportunities to learn and to grow and we kind of waste them he's not he's not going to give us anymore But the secret of Christian maturity is this. If you desire growth, if you're willing to learn and be stretched and grow, then God's going to give you more. He's going to give you more. He's going to give you more. And so some of you have experienced this. You've read through the Bible throughout the course of a year, over the course of two years. And you've come to me and you said, you know, just this week I was reading this chapter and this thing jumped out at me. I never thought about this before. The truth is mind-boggling on how encouraging that is for me. How come I've never seen that before? Because more light's been given to you to understand it. More more understanding has been entrusted to you by God. But here's the thing. Even people who think they have the word, Jesus says eventually it's going to be taken away from them because they're not listening to what it says. They're not opening themselves up to hear and to believe and to be changed. And so Jesus says to us, be careful how you hear. Even in coming here today, are you simply here to maintain marital peace? Is it to keep your spouse happy? Are you here simply out of religious duty? I know I'm supposed to be at church on Sundays and I'm a member of this church and if I don't show up, people are going to think ill of me. God might think ill of me. Jesus says, none of that matters. That's not why why you come. That's not why you open your Bible at your house. You have to listen to it and you have to be careful how you listen because the word, like a lamp in a house, is designed to produce light in you. It's designed to produce change and maturity. If you come again and again expecting the word to be proclaimed, to be opened up, and you will hear from God, then God will continue to speak. 
If you allow yourself to be changed, he will continue to change you until you are mature in Christ. So the obvious question is then this, how do I listen well? Isn't that what Jesus said? Take care how you listen. So how do I take care in listening? How do I take care in listening? What can I do to make sure I'm actually listening to the word of God in a way in which I'm going to grow and mature? Well, let me offer you a couple practical suggestions. First of all, you should ask God for help. You should ask God for help. Anytime you're going to be exposed to God's word, whether you're sitting down to to read a chapter in the morning, whether you're listening at a three-day Bible conference or you're sitting here on Sunday morning, you start with prayer. You ask God to help you here. Ask him for a hunger for his word, for attention to his word, for understanding of his word, and for obedience to his word. You ask for help. Secondly, Secondly, you should get rid of distraction. You should get rid of distraction. Now, if you just ask God for help to listen, the one thing you don't want to do is sit in uh, the midst of a million distractions, right? You're throwing yourself headlong into temptation and basically saying, God, I'm expecting you all to do all the heavy lifting here, okay? That's probably not what he wants to hear. Now, you know, I try to make a big deal of it because I don't want to be distracting, but even this morning I, I am preaching from technology, okay? Technology, like anything else, is neither good nor bad. It's technology, can be used for good things, can be used for bad things. Some of you, I don't say open your Bibles. I should say, you know, press your button on your app because that's how you're looking, on a tablet, on a phone. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But can I tell you that when we do those kinds of things, we're flirting with temptation, whether it's, our, whether it's sitting here listening to a sermon or whether we're doing our Bible study off that because we know implicitly Facebook is two clicks away. If I'm reading my Bible, I hit the home button, I hit Facebook, and I'm instantly connected to the internet and, and seeing what people are doing. Email, two clicks away. Google search, two clicks away. And there is going to be the temptation to, to, to be consumed with, you know, I really should check and see what, what's going to be happening with this. And maybe even as we driven by something good, I want to go and see, make sure that person who offered that prayer request was in pretty bad shape. I wonder if they posted an update. The, the reality is in the symbols of our hearts, we will twist even good things into temptations to flee from listening well to God's word. And so just practically speaking, you know, I would just say, um, put it in airplane mode because then you can't get to the internet. You're tempted to click over, click, click. Oh, now you got to go to settings. Then you got to turn airplane mode back off. It's such a simple way of saying, you know what, God, you are worth listening to without the distractions. I, I do sermon prep on a computer. You know what I have to do sometimes? I got to close the browser down. Because I know the temptation for me is tab, 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 tab. So again, I just one click over and I'm off of my Bible study site onto anything else that I want. I mean, the world is your oyster online. Melinda and I had a disagreement about, well, was that actor from this movie or this movie? Well, guess what? I'm going to find out who's right. Click, internet movie database, and here I go, right? We're full of distractions. Well, yeah, but come on, we're mature. We can handle that. Let me tell you something. I sat behind a guy. It wasn't in this church. It was visiting family. I sat behind a guy, uh, looked all, looked like he was put together, intelligent guy, young adult, college student. And and he's looking at his years ago before it was like trendy. And he's got his, his iPhone out and he's got his Bible app open and he's even taken notes. He lasts 10 minutes and he's on Facebook checking updates in the middle of the sermon. That is not honoring to God. I mean, I am just a man. But this word is not just a book. No matter how bad the sermon is, if the word of God is being declared, being read, being preached, being shared, being taught, then it demands our attention. It demands our attention. So you know what you know what it is. Maybe it's not technology for you. Maybe it's your kids. You've got to get up early. You've got to stay up late. 
Maybe it's television. You've got to just turn it off and leave it off. You need to know your heart. You need to know where you are tempted to distraction and deal ruthlessly with it to show God you are serious about listening well to his word. Next, you should plan to be confronted on sin. You should plan on being confronted. Part of God's grace is about telling us that we're sinful, that we need change. So when you come to the Bible, you should not expect to always have your ego stroked. You should not always expect to have your self-esteem boosted. Sometimes God is going to slap you upside the face with your inadequacies and your sin. But here's the thing. He does it always in preparation for the hope of the gospel. Because where sin is acknowledged, grace abounds. Grace abounds. Sometimes you're going to be humbled. And remember, this is just part of God's mercy. Along with that fourth, you should play on being changed. You should play on being changed. Spiritual maturity is not simply about acknowledging sin. It is also about growing in holiness, about having righteousness cultivated in your life. So that's why Paul can say in a place like Colossians, put off the things of this world and put on the things of God. Put off your old self in Adam and put on your new self and the new man in Christ. And that leads to the last thing, and that is you should listen for Christ when you read. You should listen for Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, I'm one of these guys that's kind of a jack of many trades, but an ace of none, you know what I'm talking about? And so uh, I've also got a kind of... Uh, hoity-toity, artsy-fartsy side, okay, that uh, some of you know about, some of you don't know about. So, like, you know, we went to, when we were on sabbatical, we went to Indianapolis Art Museum, and I'm, like, this close from a Van Gogh, and I want to cry because it's so beautiful, and I'm so close to this thing, and you can see the brushwork. And it's, like, uh, it's it's amazing. It boggles my mind. But what that also means is I not only enjoy, like, Star Wars movies, I also like, you know, uh, classical music and some of these kind of things. And one of the things I absolutely love about what we might call high music or even fake high music is when they put together a piece, the, the opening, the opening uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, the opening composition is almost always contains major themes for characters and ideas that are going to show up in the rest of the music piece. If it's a movie, if it's a really good movie soundtrack, something like by John Williams often, he's assigned all of the major characters or ideas, this little musical cue. And in that opening credits thing, he weaves together all these little themes. So that way, it's telling you what to expect. And then as you begin to either listen to this piece by Bach or listen to your favorite opera or even sit down and watch Lord of the Rings or something, uh, whenever, whenever the, that person is on screen, you hear their theme. Sometimes, though, the really creative people, it's not the person is on screen. Maybe they're being talked about. Maybe it's an idea associated with that person. And then you hear that background playing slowly and softly in the background or something. Or maybe it's even woven into this mournful dirge, okay? So, you know, just to give, again, we'll bring it down to the masses here. You know, some of you have seen Lord of the Rings. You, know, you have that great fellowship theme, okay? You know, dun, 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 dun. you know what I'm talking about? And so, so the first time you see them going to, on their journey to Mordor, you know, and you have that scene that they filmed just to promote the movie two years in advance where all the fellowship are walking up over that hill and then back down the hill in slow motion. And it's all Majestic, you know, and then the same theme it was a fellowship theme. Some of you are laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then they're leaving the mines of Moria because I mean they're just going to get slaughtered if they don't, right? Uh, they ha- they made the ruckus. They're fighting. They got to get out of there. Suddenly, the because they're they're fighting and they're running, the theme gets amped up. So now it's not dun dun. Now it's dun 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 because it's like action theme. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. At the very beginning, the Bible does the exact same thing. And it's not musical, but it's such a great analogy. It, it, it weaves into the narrative 
certain theological motifs. These, these theological songs. And, and it, it shows them to you right at the beginning and then it, then it comes back up. And one of the key themes that you can imagine is the theme for Christ. So in the midst of this despairing, this mournful dirge-like song in, in Genesis 3 that shows we have taken God's good creation and we have wrecked it. We, we have completely ruined and soiled in every way imaginable that which was beautiful and gracious and magnificent. In verse 15, there's this little strain of hope that comes as the sun is promised. And, and that theme begins to build and weave its way in, even in small ways, so that when Noah is born, they say they named him Noah because they thought he might be the son who would redeem us. And you see again this little, this little string of hope that comes. And so this, this musical cue, this theological motif is woven all throughout the Bible. So sometimes in parts like Judges, where, where it's just a slaughter fest, and you just can't imagine how can the people of God be this sinful? That, that theme is almost hidden behind all of this sin and despair. Ezekiel 10, when God's glory leaves the temple and, and, and goes away from His people, that, that, that this theme of the Messiah is, 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 is like, it's like mournful and longing. Like, how, how, can, how can all of this be happening? But then you have places like 2 Samuel 7 that Pastor Richard preached on a few weeks ago, or Zechariah 3 or John 1, when, when suddenly, suddenly, the glory of the gospel begins to shine and you have this, this kind of hope-filled, beautiful-to-my-soul melody that makes you say, yes, I want that, I want that, I want that. And then you have those places like Isaiah 53 or the end of the gospels where the cross is held up and you see this, this, this mystery as the, as the theme begins to, to, to move in ways you never expected as suffering and glory become mixed together in the ministry of Christ as our Savior. And then you have just a few chapters later of the Gospels in places like Revelation 1 where the risen Christ is revealed in glory and you have this triumphant, bombastic version of this Gospel theme that is played in our mind's eye. This is what, as, as my, my point to all this is simply this, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as those who love our Savior and the Gospel, we know that it runs throughout the Bible, that Jesus is the point of the Scriptures. His major condemnation for the Pharisees was, you love the Scriptures, but you search them and search them, and you never see me. Loved ones, we must tune our ears for that Gospel song, so that, so that whenever we are listening to the Word of God, we will see it there. And we will be able to know this is where my Savior is. This is where my Savior is. Because that is not only the hope that we have for the future, it is the gospel, it is the power for change now. So that's how, practically speaking, you can train yourself to take care in how you hear the word of God. Very quickly, the last thing, obeying the word brings intimacy with Christ. Obeying the word brings intimacy with Christ. Verse 19, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Two things. One thing that is minor in the text, but major for us, and something else that is major in the text and major for us. Back in the 70s and the 80s, the fruit of corporate America and um, 
dads working like crazy because they felt like that earning big paychecks was the way to show love for families led to um, what can best be described as father hunger by a whole generation of kids. They never saw their dads. Maybe on Saturday, sometimes not. Sometimes they're just grinding away seven days a week because they think, if I just can get the bigger house, if I can get the extra car, if I can provide them with better clothes, then they're going to know I love them. And what, what wives and children across America were saying is, no, we want you, Dad. We want you at home. And that began to become apparent as, as uh, disobedience and, and frustration and even rates of suicide uh, began to, to go up among a generation of Americans. And then there was this, there was this shift, at least in the church, there was an acknowledgement in pop culture as well, but within the church you had organizations like Promise Keepers and so many other things that said, look, Dad, the most important thing you can do, husband, the most important thing you can do is not go out and earn a paycheck. It's loving your family. And so what, so what there was this push, to, let's get Dad back into the house. It was a good thing, but here's the problem. Now, sometimes we've overcorrected, right? And we've pushed on too far so that now our family becomes the excuse for not serving God for not being involved at church, for not living the way that he wants us to, even for not having family devotion. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. I've got too many kids. I've got to spend time with my family. Now, what does Jesus do here? His mother, his brothers, his sisters come to him and say, hey, we need to see Jesus. And Jesus says, I've got something more important to do right now. He's not saying he doesn't love them. He's not saying that, that, that they're no good. He's not disparaging them in any way. But what he is saying is this. There are times when God has something more important for you to do than spend time with your family. Now you say, what, where is the wisdom in knowing where that is? I don't know. That's why you got a Bible. Read it and figure it out. Pray about it. I mean, there's no easy answer to that. But there are times when you need to look your kids in the eye and say, because I love you. I'm showing you an example of faithfulness to God, and I will not be here tonight. There's sometimes you need to look at relatives who invite you over in the midst of church events that are pretty important and say to them, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to show you an example of faithfulness, and I can't come to your event. Am I saying never go to family things? Don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that you should always be at every single thing the church does. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, do not let your family become an idol. That's what I'm saying. That's going to look different for every person. Only you can know the decisions that you need to make by God's spirit and by the wisdom of the word that he gives you. But, but I, I, see it, I see it here. I see it in other churches. I see it in extended family where, where family becomes the, the all-consuming idol with which we excuse all of our sinful behavior and our neglect of listening well to the word and obeying it. And Jesus here clearly demonstrates that's not honoring to God. But more importantly, notice... Notice, it is by obedience to the word of God that intimacy is created with God. That, that boggles my mind. He looks at the crowds and says, hey, your mom and your, your family, they're trying to get to you. And he says, what family? This is my family, those who hear the word of God and obey it. Those who hear the word of God and obey it. Often we think that crying during a moving song means intimacy with God. We, we think that coming to, to, to church, for, for some people, I don't think there's many in here, but for some people it's speaking in tongues is, is an intimate encounter with God. And Jesus makes it clear, here is the thing that the Father values. Here is the thing that the Spirit values. Here is the thing that I value. Here is what creates intimacy between me and you so that I put my arms around you in love, in joy, and say, this is my family. It's when, like me, 
Jesus says, like me, you listen to the word of God and you obey it. That's what creates intimacy between the Father and us. I close with this story. Thomas Goodwin was a man of the academy. In the 1500s, he was a well-respected professor of theology and a very famous preacher. He was a marked contrast by another man named John Rogers of Dedham. He was also a famous, famous preacher, but he had no college training, no formal training. He was what they termed a country preacher. But Godwin had heard good things and went out to hear him one day. And later he would tell his friend what John Howe what he experienced. He says this, I took a journey to hear him preach on his lecture day, and Mr. Rogers was preaching on the subject of the Scriptures. And in his sermon, he fell into such an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. The people weren't hearing the Word of God, and he impersonated God to the people. He said, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible, and yet you have, not, you have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses, all covered with dust and cobwebs. Do you not care to listen to it? Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And then Thomas Goodwin says he picked up the Bible from the cushion of the pulpit and he began to walk away from it. But then he turned around and he began to impersonate the people speaking back to God. And he fell on his knees and cried out and he pled earnestly, Lord, whatever you do to us, do not take the Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us your Bible. Do not take away the Bible. And he turned again and impersonated God to the people. Say you so? Well, I will try you a little while longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you love it more, observe it more, practice it more, live according to it more. Godwin tells Mr. Rogers then that the congregation was left in a deluge of tears and Mr. Or Dr. Goodwin himself was so deeply affected that when he left the building, he could not even mount his horse to ride away. Instead, he simply put his arm around the horse's neck and began to walk home and in fact needed the support of the horse because he wept so bitterly. Here was he, the famous Dr. Goodwin, the great professor who wrote volume after volume, who lectured after lecture after lecture, who knew the scriptures inside and out and yet was convicted that he had not been hearing the word of God as he should. From the day time began, down through the ages to this very moment, God has been speaking. He speaks today and he will continue to speak for eternity. The question we must ask ourselves is, are we listening? Are we listening? Father, may we be a people who listen to your word. May we be a people who, who hear well what you would have to say to us. That we would not only hear, but we would obey. God, we know that this is what creates intimacy with you. This is what produces within us the ability to display spiritual fruit for you. This is what allows us to live as your disciples. God, make it true of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.